Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on all things ophthalmology brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Dr. Andrea Tooley. And I'm Dr. Eric Bothan. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest in ophthalmology, medicine, and more. In today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Cheryl Kana, one of our glaucoma specialists here at the Mayo Clinic, to talk about artificial intelligence in ophthalmology. Dr. Kana shares with us how AI can be used in ophthalmology and what innovations are on the horizon. Dr. Cheryl Kana is an Associate Professor of Ophthalmology and Glaucoma Specialist here at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Kana holds multiple leadership positions with the American Glaucoma Society and serves as the Clinical Practice Chair for the Ophthalmology Department at Mayo. She's a past Residency Program Director and recipient of the Teacher of the Year and Surgical Teaching Awards. Dr. Kana's clinical interests include artificial intelligence and outcomes in glaucoma and cataract surgery. Welcome, Dr. Kana. Thank you. It's great to be here. Oh, we're so happy to have you here. And we're really excited to talk about artificial intelligence, very trendy, kind of sweeping the ophthalmology news to talk about. We know that there's lots of exciting new things on the horizon for AI, and glaucoma is one of the fields that's kind of perfect for AI. Just tell us kind of an overview of artificial intelligence, what it is, how we're seeing it used in ophthalmology. Give us like the basic overview. Yeah, so artificial intelligence really means empowering machines to use data to predict outcomes. So we have machine learning, which is really using algorithms and statistical tools to use certain types of data and then predicting outcomes. Deep learning is really a subset of machine learning. And what that means is you're using typically something like CNN or convoluted neural networks. And that's an algorithm that uses multiple layers to look at different factors and look at relationships between different factors that predict outcome. So we're very excited in ophthalmology at Mayo Clinic because for the first time, we've been able to parse our data, organize our data, and use it for deep learning for artificial intelligence type initiatives. In my own practice, I've actually had two main projects that I've been working on in this space. And one is looking at someone's facial contour and predicting how it relates to their peripheral visual field. And in this way, we can actually factor out someone's facial contour-induced visual field defects so that we can see underlying pathology on their visual field. So that's an example of artificial intelligence in the space in glaucoma. So that's really exciting. Another area that we're using deep learning is we're looking at image data for glaucoma patients. And we've created an algorithm to predict blindness. So we can identify patients who are at high risk of blindness using this image data. It's really exciting because we can isolate different populations. Like I can look at only patients with exfoliative glaucoma and I can predict you know, over time, which patients are at highest risk to go blind in the next five years or 10 years based on different factors like race, gender, you know, their visual field data, their OCT data, maybe their health status, socioeconomic factors. And so it's, it's exciting to put all these factors into our algorithm and predict blindness from glaucoma in different populations. So... Going back, I have a you know question. I mean, certainly those of us that are not in the AI world of research and clinical applications appreciate the power that's there, and yet it's hard to understand unless you have a computer science background, hard to understand what can we do and how would we even start. 
What was your first introduction to AI as you started to realize maybe I could use this in ophthalmology? So what were your first steps, sir? What's your prior expertise background that launched you from where you were then with an idea to where you are now learning about those ideas? You know, I definitely do not have an IT background. I think I had a background in some clinical research studies, and that's where I started. And you really realize that by organizing data and looking at specific numerical data, there's a lot of power in that. You can do things faster, you can do things more accurately. So if we look at the big diabetic retinopathy studies, you know, we, we used to look at visual acuity outcomes. Well, using the data that we have now, we can say, okay, let's look at the fluid on the OCT and create an algorithm that measures fluid on the OCT and use that as our outcome instead of visual acuity to see if a specific treatment is effective or not. So you can use this image data to really give you granular outcome data that we couldn't do before. So it, it helps you do these studies faster, and I would say more accurately using very appropriate outcome measures. So with your academic curiosity to realize that we can take layers off the level of data we have and go deeper into what the relationships are, how here at Mayo have you found the resources or partnering to do this? I mean, it's because a lot of ophthalmologists might say, I'd love to answer that question. So when you have one here, what do you tap into or who do you partner with? I know you have expertise now in this area, but how does one answer these questions in the clinical practice like ours? You know, I'm very lucky to work at Mayo Clinic, so I'll say that because I have brilliant partners, you know, in the clinical space, in the you know, technological spaces. So I think I'm very fortunate being at this institution because if you have a question and you have curiosity, you can really find people around you to support you. I think it started off, uh, Ray Isi is our leader. We call him our platform chair, and he's doing a phenomenal job in this space. And so over the last five years or maybe more, we really wanted to take our image data and organize it and develop a database in ophthalmology so that we could mine that data. And so it started there. It was a really complex process to figure out how to get the data out of the machines and then how to organize that data and then how to integrate our image data with clinical data, both within ophthalmology and also from other departments. So now we're using something called Denoto that really allows us to integrate data from different departments, from our own department, different types of data. Dr. Ayazi also developed something called Opus, which is software that allows us to mine the data and query the data and do searches. And so what we can do is say, okay, these are the parameters that we would like to research. We would like a group of patients with exfoliative glaucoma on certain dates. And by the way, we'd like to look at, you know, their OCT data and their visual field data and their fundus photos. And then we want to only look at patients who are diabetic and, you know, have had trauma or, you know, <laughs> I mean, you can think of any set of circumstances. And so because of the organization of our data, we can look at very specific data sets very, very quickly and answer some very important questions. You shared with us how you had a couple 
examples of deep learning, relationship searching, mm-hmm. research projects going. Can you frame, even back up and say, you commented about machine learning and deep learning then. So you have these ideas, you have these this research team. Can you give us an example of a clinical question that would be more fit under the machine learning category versus a clinical question that'd be more into the deep learning category? Because I understand you say the difference is mining data versus relationships, but help me just go back on that question before we go on to the next. Yeah, so deep learning is really a subset of machine learning, and that's commonly what we use. I'm not a data scientist, but I think that most often we use deep learning to look at these relationships and you know, then look at the output of these relationships. Okay. I could be totally wrong here, but AI is so interesting to me, and when I try to conceptualize what we're actually doing, correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, Dr. Khanna, with machine learning, you, know, you can put in these parameters, you can say here are 10,000 fundus photos, and these are diabetic retinopathy, and these are normal. The machine can then learn which are normal Mm -hmm. and which are diabetic. And they have a set amount of parameters that they use for that. But then the things that we don't understand, like here are a bunch of fundus photos and these are male and these are female. And now somehow AI can predict looking at a fundus if it's male or female, which we have no idea even what parameters they're using. So those are the neural network that the machine is developing and we don't even know how the machine is able to decide if it's male or female, but they're super accurate, Mm -hmm. which is, unbelievable. It kind of blows my mind. I don't really understand how it works, but I do see tremendous value in AI use for screening. And I think that's why we see so much use in retina and so much use in glaucoma, right? And we're currently using AI for screening in glaucoma. So we have an algorithm to triage patients in glaucoma, and we will be piloting that this year. And I think your descriptions is a good one in terms of machine learning versus deep learning. So you can think of deep learning as really multiple layers that processes data to look at very specific relationships that we may not recognize. So it's looking for patterns given certain sets of data. Right. Yeah, versus um, artificial intelligence in general is empowering machines to follow specific algorithms, statistical analyses that are preset. Mm Mm-hmm. All of it really kind of blows my mind, and I'm excited for the potential for patients to have better monitoring, better touch points with healthcare without the burden of having to come in for the patients. Do you see potential for that with glaucoma? I definitely do. So I think that, as you say, we have an opportunity to reach patients who are not physically with us, so I think we can provide remote care which is really powerful. I think we can also identify people who are at high risk for disease versus people who are not. There's a lot of value in giving comfort to people that I'm not at high risk to develop this disease and maybe I don't need to come in every year, but I need to touch base every three years or five years. And so I think it it goes both ways. It would be so interesting if you could put in a bunch of parameters for a patient with ocular hypertension and then AI could tell you this one's never gonna get glaucoma and their disc is gonna stay fine, but this one is gonna have, it needs their pressure way low. Or maybe even if AI could tell us how low, this person's okay in the high teens, but this person needs to be in the single digits. Am I to- totally dreaming here or is that a possibility? I think we're not there yet. And I think 
you know, we can identify people who are at high risk, but really we need to validate. Mm -hmm. We need to test what we come up with in terms of algorithms. And we probably need to follow people in real time and and not just remotely, you know, face-to-face visits because, you know, certainly there are factors that maybe we're not accounting for. Yeah, so we're not out of jobs yet. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) When you say that, how does one validate an AI result? Yeah, so generally we start with 80% of the data to train as a training set, essentially, and then we validate it with 20% of the remaining data. And then we validate it, we go back and we look at the patients that are identified as high risk, and then we have specialists look at that and see if we agree or disagree or if we need to tweak the, the algorithm. So it's definitely a process. And then also the type of data that we use I think you know we've really learned that we have to pick and choose, okay, we have this many visual acuities and which one will we pay attention to? You know, the best visual acuity, the average visual acuity, you know, the Snellen versus ETDRS versus pinhole, you know, versus best corrected refracted visual acuity. So I mean, there's just, you have to decide what data you, you use in each circumstance. More and more in the literature, the science continues to evolve and present the ongoing landscape of AI. Some of us are, most of us in a place like the Mayo Clinic, but across the country, many people review articles on scientific results, whether it's in a case series or a randomized control study. And typically, we get to a point where we have enough statistical experience and training to decipher which studies are good or bad, which study, which probably don't have enough power, how often a p-value isn't significant because they probably don't have enough patients to be significant. What's the difference between a univariate analysis and a multivariate analysis? I find it an interesting journey that I think there's such a small chiasm of people that understand the whole AI box like you do enough I'm curious on, in, in the community, as these articles come out, how are they vetted and reviewed? And is there an ability for journals when an AI article says, oh, this is a relationship with glaucoma? Mm-hmm. Is the concern the same? That there's going to be AI results that are not a very good study versus an AI result that's a beautiful study that we need to shape our care out of? Is that a concern, or is every AI result going to be one we can change our practice about? I look at AI as really a different type of research study. I mean, I think it starts with the quality of data. You know, at Mayo Clinic, we're very fortunate. We have consistent machines that we accumulate the data, then we have discrete data to use. We have longitudinal data on a consistent patient population. We use controls to see, okay, if I'm testing this group, do I have a control? So I think, you know, the characteristics of AI are similar to a good research study. Mm -hmm. If you start off with consistent data, longitudinal data, control group, you know, then you'll have better information at the end. It's a means of doing better research, but the same principles principles Mm -hmm. apply. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. What what do you see with what you've learned now, the opportunities that you know that are out there? What do you think are kind of the the forefront for AI use in glaucoma and then in kind of ophthalmology at large? 
I mean, I'm so excited that we're entering this era. And I think that, you know, in ophthalmology, I hope that it identifies patients who are at the highest risk. And I hope that it increases our reach to patients who are not, you know, in our office with us. So I think that's my hope for glaucoma in a nutshell. I think in the department, I mean, the possibilities are limitless. I think that we can really use our image data to help diabetic patients, to help patients with macular degeneration, to define appropriate treatment intervals. I mean, one very simple study that we're talking about is, you know, we use Avastin and Lucentis and all these drugs to treat macular degeneration. So we can really identify patients who respond well and patients who don't respond well and very quickly identify when to move on to a different treatment. And so I think having an algorithm that would identify patients who are responders and Mm non-responders without seeing that patient face-to-face would be really powerful. So I think incorporating it into clinical practice is really exciting. One thing I really wonder is how validated and how much time and trust are we going to have to have in order to let AI change our clinical practice? So in neuro-ophthalmology, they looked at um, optic nerve photos and uh, of disc edema, and they had a computer say whether or not the disc edema was from raised ICP, whether it was true papilledema or pseudopapilledema from something else, and they compared it to like the world expert neuro-ophthalmologists, and the machine won or was just as accurate as the expert, but in way, way less time. It took them like two seconds and it took the neuro-ophthalmologist three hours or something. I'm, I'm totally making this study, these numbers up, but it's basically, that's the premise. So how secure in the AI data are we gonna have to be before we say, this patient doesn't really need an LP. The machine says it's papilledema, it's raised ICP. We don't need to check it with an LP, we trust it. How far do we have to go before we trust it? I mean, I think we've seen a lot of transitions in clinical practice, and you know, I think already we're seeing that these algorithms are more dependable than what uh, a provider is. And I think the more time goes on, the more we'll trust these algorithms. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember the days going from full threshold visual field to CETA. You know, and people said, "Can we trust CETA?" You know, visual field exam. Right. And really, it's a matter of time and and using it and you know, you realize the benefit of someone taking a visual field in eight minutes as opposed to 12 or 15 minutes, right. and, and that is much more accurate. So I think as you use this information, these algorithms more, I think our trust will improve. Yeah. Even lens calcs, it's probably relevant for both of you using different AI, because aren't we using AI for some of the lens calculation new formulas? Isn't that true? So, I mean, there. I, I guess I don't know the background behind some of them. Certainly, that some of these evolving formulas are using multiples and the outcomes to kind of merge them. Right. I mean, that's like the Barrett and these new, newer formulas are a extrapolation of multiple. Mm-hmm. I, I can't speak to the background and how in, individually they were developed. If AI was part of that, or if it was other mathematical modeling, but yeah, the opportunities are endless. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming and helping us just understand your excitement and our department's excitement behind AI and and just giving us a, a taste of what the future might be as our practices evolve. Yeah, so exciting. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You can find all episodes of the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on our website. Thank you for listening, and we definitely look forward to sharing more 